If you want to be an innovator, you have to believe in stuff that other people don't believe in. When I got a job at Lab Bible, a very, very good friend of mine said, but Mimi, you don't know anything about digital media. And I was like, you're right. But not knowing about the thing that other people know about is fine. It's knowing the things that they don't know about that really matters. Ugh, this is a horrid, horrid, bad thing for society. Lad culture is terrible. Went to the offices in Manchester and the guys were just so nice. I guess you wouldn't describe yourself as a lad at uh, that point. or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think as a woman, I feel a bit differently about Cleavage Thursday than if I'm a bloke. My life was all of these things. It was love, it was loss, it was children, it was family, it was work, it was fear. Up in a little village in the north of England, our guest's story begins. Seeing her father as a doctor and expected to have a profession just like him. So your experience of this moment, which we are in theory sharing, and my experience of this moment are totally different. What you see and what I see almost don't intersect. Matter's just an emanation of consciousness. Can't leave it there. <laughs> Hang on. Hi, I'm Mimi Turner, and this is how I became the head of EMEA and Latin America for the B2B Institute at LinkedIn. Up in a little village in the north of England, our guest's story begins. Seeing her father as a doctor and expected to have a profession just like him beginning her profession in the world of media, press and journalism, pursuing through into the point where she decided to change her vision. From post to post and pillar to pillar, she has proven to affect change. From strategy to politics and lad bible, there's no challenge that's out of her range. So now we'll have a few hours to tell her story and let it sink in. Welcoming Mimi Turner, head of the B2B Institute of EMEA and Latin America. I'm very, very touched by that. That was lovely. Welcome. I feel welcome. I feel like welcomed. That's Thank you it. for welcoming me. In in our own unique way with the with the lyrical skills of Ashley. So we get into your story. This is the story of how you became Mimi Turner. I feel like I'm going to learn from this story. You know, it might just be as interesting, you know. It's not a story that I've revisited, so yeah. There we go. You'll learn something. We'll learn something. Everybody watching, listening will learn something. Everybody's happy. You have had a career that has spanned multiple different companies and industries, from journalism to politics and big media. You've worked with Vice Media. You've worked with LinkedIn now. Uh, you've been at um, Liberal, Liberal Democrats um, and Lad Bible. How unique. What a story. We're going to unpack everything. Let's get back to where it all began, though. Yes, please tell, tell us about your childhood isn't it, and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in a very small village in West Yorkshire. Literally, it was sort of one road and about 12 houses and a church and a little post office. Um, my father was a doctor. He was a consultant anaesthetist. My mother was a teacher. We were the only Indian people in the village. Um, so there was lots of, lots of difference. Um, and my, I think my parents were different from many Indian parents in that they were, 
they had lots of different friends. They were very social, not just within the Indian, the Indian doctor community, uh, but also in our own village community. Um, and I think they'd always have these amazing parties every year. It was like a big thing in the summer. We'd have a, a summer party when the strawberries came in. It was like timed for the straw, and um, they'd cook lots of food, and people would would you know all the people in the village came, and it was really lovely. And they had lots of Indian food, which was obviously quite a, quite a novelty. And I really remember that people came to the party and then stay till about three o'clock in the morning. And then the next day when everyone was coming, people would come back and have seconds. <laughs> uh, and I think my parents really enjoyed that. Loved enjoyed that. it too. What did that, did, was there anything looking back now at that moment that, that you think taught you something? Um, I think my parents left India because they they wanted to leave something behind. They They, they wanted to be different from the shape of the life that they would have had to have had they lived there. And I think they were very successful. They were first generation immigrants. Uh, my father, I think, had to requalify or had to do his medical exams, or maybe my mother had to do. He was qualified, but they came to this country with very little money. You couldn't actually bring money into the country at that time. And they had an incredibly brave life. I mean, uh, they left something, everything behind at a time when you just didn't travel here and there and built another life for themselves. So I think in a sense, my sister and I, whatever we've done, it's not as brave, wasn't as fraught with risk. Uh, and I think they're both brave, brave people, but it takes a toll, it takes a toll on how much you're able to enjoy. So I think I learned that from them, but they were very happy, flourishing people and other people were a very big part of that. Our friends in the village still very much part of our lives now. What were your kind of first experiences going through school? Was there anything that stood out to you that you that shaped you in any way? I'm sure there are loads of things. I'm sure there are loads of things. I don't really think of that, you know, that, that sort of model of this one thing that shapes you. Uh, no, I probably, probably wanted to be part of a bigger world. Mm -hmm. um, we had a very, it wasn't a life where very many things happened. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, it's not like, I was to say the lives of children, it's not like the lives of my children. Um, we didn't do very much from year to year. And I think I, I wanted, when I, I came to London to study, it was like coming to the Emerald City. You know, you could go everywhere that you wanted to go. It was amazing. And now when I go to New York, I sort of have a bit of that feeling again. But yes, I think I probably wanted to, I wanted to be part of something bigger or, and it may be even more anonymous, but bigger. Yeah. When, when did your love of journalism begin? That's a really interesting, interesting question because I had zero love of journalism, actually. I wasn't like one of those. I wasn't like William Hague or Martin Sorrell who read the Financial Times from the age of nine. I think I read the Charlie Brown and I read the tennis and that's about it. Because, uh, and I don't think I had ever even thought of journalism as a possibility. You know, we, we had a very sort of quite... Um, like a formal expectation of what we do in Asian families, they basically, you can, it's not just that they wanted me to do things. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, 
but um, also I had no sense that I knew better. You know, it's not like I had it like I, I, I was burning will to do something. I'm going to do it. I, I didn't have that either. Um, I didn't really understand the power of what journalism could be until I was at university. I was at Imperial, um, and I wrote for the student paper because I wanted to. And then you'd go into the junior common room on a Wednesday when Felix, which was the paper, came out, and you could just literally see people reading the thing that you'd written. And I think for me, it wasn't even the writing; it was the ability to communicate. It was to to hold that that maybe 150 people right now are holding the thoughts that I put in mm. at this moment. And it's a sort of synthesis of, of something that happened. And I got involved in the student radio station. Um, and, and then there's a guy called Declan Curry who said, you know, Mimi, we're going to do a news program. He actually went on to be produced at LBC and then had a, a big career at the BBC. And he said, we're not going to do this kind of music like everybody would come in with their 10 cds and they play all their nirvana we're going to do a news program we're only going to interview people who we've seen on tv and i was like yeah i'm down for that that's big yeah. that's that's different and obviously because i was a girl even though i was doing engineering i'd get sent to do the interviews because obviously the boys could do the desk so but i i i, I really enjoyed that and had a moment interviewing I think it might have been michael portillo thinking you know, the whole life of everyone I knew in Kirksmeaton, which is a lovely place, by the way, and I don't want to say anything bad about Kirksmeaton, but we could just kind of fall off the edge of the earth and nobody nobody would know. Like, nobody would really care. No person in power who makes decisions about the world would we just have, it would be utterly irrelevant. Whereas a not a not particularly capable person like me can ask a person who's, I think he was the chief secretary to the treasury, a question about his strategy and why he wants to do this thing, which is just incredible. I mean, that just felt like incredible. That for me was like a moment of possibility. What, what did you think it enabled you or did for you as a, as a was it something it did for you as a person? Um, I, no, I think it, 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 it it didn't do anything for me as a person, but it created the possibility that any person in the right place at the right time with the right question who understood the context could elicit an answer that might be interesting or useful or relevant or visible. Um, and I felt that was, that was a sort of gestalt moment. That, that, that was a recognition. And, and, and I, I was, I realized that it was, it's not just like I wanted to do it. I realized I could do it. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't impossible. And not only was it not impossible, it was actually extremely within reach. Mm -hmm. And I obviously, you know, all the moments that you have a great clarity is you have the clarity because you don't know anything really. I didn't know that, you know, that politicians will always want to be inter interviewed by student journalists because students are a really difficult to reach demographic and you know young people don't vote and they you know that they'll go out of their way i didn't realize any of that um so i didn't realize that it was easy because the circumstances allowed i just thought it was easy because it was possible but i i would you know i think if i was giving anybody career advice i would say look at seek out what you find easy Everybody has this whole idea that we've just got to be constantly improving ourselves and learning about stuff that we don't know. 
um, in order to um, get to be at an average level of, of, you know, Excel or something, I would say don't do that. Find the thing that you find easy because not everybody will find it easy. And if you find it easy, you'll be really motivated to be amongst the best in that thing. Mm. And that's why I think that finding easy things, things that you find easy should be your first question. Not what do you like or what do you want to do or even what do you care about? Those are interesting questions, but they're, they're to some extent fabricated in, our, in, in the picture that we paint of ourselves. What do you find easy? I think is a, much, is a question that's open and I think most people can find a way of answering that, whether you think you're good at stuff or not. Because I'm not asking you about what your capability is. I'm asking about what do you find easy? So you started to gain experience within the world of journalism at university. Yeah. What happens when you reach the end of your degree? Well, I wanted to, I knew, I knew that this was the most important thing for me. I knew I could do it. I couldn't really see a future for myself as a civil engineer, right? I think I would have been as bad a civil engineer as I would have been a doctor. Many more people would probably not be alive if I'd actually entered any of those professions. <laughs> um, so that was a good thing. And then, uh, but I, I found my way into a job at, a part of like some weird offshoot of the Financial Times where they looked at the overnight newswires um, and I thought, I need to be adjacent to something that I want to get to. Because I had this idea, I don't really want to be a trainee. I've like, you know, once you've interviewed, I think I'd interviewed all the prime ministers uh, like for over like a, a, a year and a half, there'd been a change in government. So I'd interviewed Tony Blair, I'd interviewed John Major. I thought, I don't want to be some sort of like gopher and you know, this is what I want to do. I have to find a way of being able to do this, not learning how to do this. Yeah, you've been at the forefront speaking. I know to the another speaking. another another decision that I made based on knowing very little, but I had huge conviction about. Um, so anyway, I and then I there was uh, I saw an interview for a, a job with the Sunday Times to write for their science section, and I think the 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 criteria were to send in two stories. Um, so I sent in two stories that uh, were, um, you know, because I'd done a science degree, I kind of understood complexity. I could just about read somebody's like four-year like dissertation with all the kind of graphs and, you know, probabilistic analysis of certain quantum wave functions, whatever it is, or biological stuff. Um, I could just about kind of understand about 30% of that and 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 then and find a way of, of telling it. So I wrote a story, two stories, two stories appeared. One was about worms eating toxic waste somewhere up in Scotland. And they actually, because it was a Sunday Times sent a photographer. So this abstract thing that I had, I had read about and then phoned up some people at Dundee University or Aberdeen, actually was visualized in the paper under my byline and then there was another story which I can't even remember. That's terrible. But these, anyway. like, what was the impact for you to see? Okay, I've I've discovered made this random, you know, call what feels a bit random, and now it's visualized. What was I think that? It had, been a th it had been three years of trying everything to 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 make that. It took three years to make that that random thing happen, and those three years were basically full of doubt. Um, what like, kind of doubts? What would you be telling yourself? Like, I don't even know how to do, like, it's not like I knew anybody who'd been a journalist. I didn't know, it wasn't, it wasn't part of any story that I had of, of myself. 
So I felt like a kind of a crab having to get into it. But I had this huge conviction that I would be able to do it. Um, but I think what was really interesting is that when the because it also persuaded my parents that this is a viable thing, you know, and I think they had some doubts, un, you know, unsurprisingly. But then I think my father took the paper, um, it was the innovation section of the Sunday Times, and I still have a copy of it somewhere. Um, he took the paper to our neighbors, um, and the neighbors already had seen it because they already read the Sunday Times. Mm -hmm. That was the thing about a big paper, like everybody read it. Um, and I just felt, yeah, that, that's that's right. That's what that's that's what I do now. So uh, I felt this impossible thing had become possible, Brilliant. which is a very very nice feeling. Doesn't last for very long, but it's a very nice feeling. And actually, maybe it does last because I'm still I'm still remembering what it felt like. If you have goals and ambitions within your personal life, career, or business and would like to overcome the challenges that you face, inspire people, and get to your goals faster, then a coach might be the right solution for you. Go to weunify.co.uk forward slash coach. Now back to the show. So, I mean, you're, you're in publications now. People are able to see your work. Your neighbours are able to see your work without you even having to physically show them or tell them. How does your career progress from here? Well, I did that for a couple of years. I wrote um, for the Times and the Sunday Times, which I really enjoyed. And it was so cool. You know, when you phone someone up and you're saying you're writing a piece for the Sunday Times, um, I think I wrote something about the pitch at Leeds United had some new technology underpinning the drainage or something. And then you phone up like the press office and then they say, oh, we'll get the chairman on. Do you want to speak to the chairman? And would be like, Yes, of course, I'd love to. <laughs> and I just thought, thought this, I'd like had a sort of a ticket to play in this incredible casino. But then um, I was married and we thought we wanted to have children and I wanted to do something that um, uh, had, had a sort of consistency. So for the section of the Sunday Times I was working for, you know, one week you'd write a story about a flying car, next it would be an amazing new cure for type 2 diabetes. The th next week it would be Leeds United has a different pitch, and there was no community around it. And I thought, mm. you know, actually, uh, maybe, maybe I wanted to do that. And my husband was setting up a business, so uh, one of us needed to be responsible. <laughs> and um, an opportunity came to join the Hollywood Reporter. The American papers pay well; they just sort of, in, even in journalism terms, they paid better. And I thought that sounded that sounded like something I could do. And it was. Um, as a business reporter, which I also, I like the abstractness of that. So even though I wanted to be a journalist, I don't think I wanted to be a journalist who knocked on your door and said, you know, your daughter's been kidnapped. Can you tell me how, how are you feeling? I had no ability. I didn't, didn't think I could do that. I mean, I, which, is, which is a big failing actually. Um, but I found a way of compensating for not by by speaking to chief executives about why their pay TV strategy had or hadn't worked, or mm. they said they'd get six thousand sort of or six hundred thousand subscribers in their first year and they got three hundred and fifty thousand. I found that was a, a a kind of a question set that I was better at. Mm. Um uh and so I joined a very nice team at the Hollywood Reporter, their European team, and it was a a brilliant um a brilliant period of time to understand the way that businesses work. 
And you do, we're foreshadowing a little bit here, but you do eventually leave journalism, but there's something that happens during this time, which you said was, you know, maybe one of the reasons or exemplifies why you did leave the industry. I think I had a realisation of the limits that I had as a journalist. I'm not instinctively opinionated. It's interesting, I was having a conversation with an MP at the Liberal Democrats, where I was later the director of strategy, and I was saying, you know, strategy is is a very long-term sort of high uncertainty, low frequency, but you've got to get it right because otherwise 18 months from now, uh, the ground will collapse before us. And, and, and the MP I was speaking to was saying, well, the thing about an MP is when you're an MP, you're, you're shooting from the hip. You've got a vague sense of what you think and you've got to go in and your ideas have got to hit somebody else's ideas in that moment. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, actually that's something that I've never had. I like to think about something, like to understand it, like to have a sense of what other people who've thought about it have thought. I'm not that, uh, I'm not that keen on going in with a first run, a first view, unless it's a instinctive view on something I know well. Um, and I think I'd I'd learned as a journalist that uh, I I didn't want to do that personal thing and I'd, I'd been able to sort of hide in as a business journalist not having to do that um, but the Hollywood Reporter became a much more influential sort of like it, it went from being a business paper to like a weekly vogue for the entertainment industry so I found myself which is not what you got into it for no, it isn't. It isn't. And everybody was, I mean, it, like it sort of, we went from being the second paper to being the dominant paper globally, but also in Hollywood, which is a, a small village. And it was a great sort of, it was a great evolution for this print title. Right. Um, uh, and it was glossy and we had like, you know, just, it was just, be it was like Vogue, but for the entertainment industry. And so I'd be going out interviewing celebrities, which I'd never done. Uh, and I fundamentally just find actors not that interesting. I mean, I know people want to all be all over actors, and in, but I just don't really, I don't know what, what it is that I'm asking them. And so I found that sort of, like you'd be saying, oh, I'm going to interview, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Actually, Arnie was a, Arnie was a really different, but and everybody would be like, oh, that's amazing. And I'd be like, it's not really. Not um, for you. Not for you. Who, who are some of the other names that you had, you were interviewing? Oh, lots of people. And I don't want to say I don't say uh, that they were all boring. Every they were all in their way interesting. But it was me, what it showed me is that this is not me. And the culmination was an interview that I did with Colin Firth. So Colin Firth was at that time the BAFTA nominee for the film that he did with Tom Ford. Mm. Um, and he was just also doing a film that I think he also got another BAFTA or Academy Award for, which was The King's Speech. So it's a big time in his career. And I think it, he didn't really like to do interviews. The PR had phoned up and said, oh, well, he's only got a bit of time, um, so you have to go to Chiswick, because he lives in Chiswick, and you have to do it on Sunday, and you, you'll get 20 minutes, which is a good, you know, a generous amount of time. Mm. And I was like, oh, really? And then, and then she said, and it's, and it's Halloween, so he'll be wanting to go trick-or-treating. And I'd be like, well, I want to go trick-or-treating with my children. So anyway, I was like quite grumpy anyway, because it takes an hour and a half to get there. Plus, I don't want to talk to Mr. Darcy about his bodice ripping. I just don't care. And also, I can tell he doesn't care. This is not mm -hmm. what Colin Firth cares about. Colin Firth is 
as much on the run from Mr. Darcy as I am have no desire to ask him about this stuff. So eventually he showed up and then we were sitting down. He'd say, oh, I'm, you know, this is really nice of you to come out on a Sunday. And I thought, oh, well, at least you're not a complete, a completely, you know, unpleasant person. And I said, in this 20 minutes, what I think we need to get out of it is something that feels truthful to you and feels truthful to me. Which is obviously not the way that I'm meant to pitch an interview, by the way. This is not how you do this. They can't fire me now because obviously I don't work for them, but this is not how you do this, kids. And he's thinking, well, this is a strange yeah, start. This is, a strange this is not normally how it goes. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's really interesting. What do you want to get out of it? And I was saying, I don't want to write a cartoon. I don't want to write the 50 other features that I've read about your brooding presence. And it's mm. like, we had just a very straightforward conversation. He was... He was telling me all sorts of stuff that you definitely shouldn't tell a reporter anyway. I think at the heart of Colin Firth was a person who wasn't at all like the Colin Firth that we perceive. So I think he had, um, both times he'd been married, he'd married somebody from a different culture altogether, which I think is interesting. If you marry someone from a totally different culture, in a sense, you're firing your, your existing culture and saying, not that, but this. And I thought that was interesting. And I think... I wrote a really unusual piece about this kind of classic, everybody's top 10 Englishman who really isn't this at all. And I, I spent quite a bit of time with him. So we spent, we were there for three hours and then really? we went for Really? So it's walk. supposed to be 20 yeah. minutes? 20 minutes. Turned into three hours. And I, you know, and I think I sent it to Colin um, to say, well, is there anything in this that you really would object to? And he said, no, I really enjoyed this process. I really enjoyed, and we sort of became randomly a bit friendly, um, and I was really proud of the piece. And I think what it what I realised is that this is not how you do a, a, a piece. You know, this is not what you're employed to do as a as a as a writer, as an as a journalist. You're employed to get something shouty that's notable, not to do portraiture. Yeah. And I felt that what I was what I had discovered about myself, to cut a very, very long story short, is that faced with a person, I was actually much more invested in that person than journalism really allowed me to be. It, the rules of journalism are not that you think, how can I present this person in a way that meets my kind of gaze, but also somebody else's, but, but is true to themselves. There are three people in that relationship. In journalism, really, you're, you have to sell out that one person so that you and the reader are the, are the unified view. And mm. I just thought... So you win as, as the paper, the audience wins because they get their bit of juicy news and yes. the, the person yeah. loses. The person loses. Mm. That's the transaction. Mm. And I, I fundamentally just don't like transactions anyway. And, uh, but, but, but also if you want to be a great journalist, there are great, great feature writers. Um, Lynn Barber... Jeannie Duggery, they do a thing. They have a sort of ability. Joan Didion, I think, Joan Didion, who I think is everybody's idea, an extraordinary writer, said that a writer's job is to be there in the background and sell you out. Mm. And 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 that that I think is a writer's job. And I felt that I'm not doing that job. What I'm actually doing is I'm helping this other person to manifest their better, you know, in fact, I'm editing all the stuff that they're telling me so that a different, you know, so that a, a, a better story for them, a better sort of, and I thought, okay, that's an interesting thing, but I don't think it's journalism. Mm, yeah. um, 
uh, at least as it had been. And and you know, I apologise to the to the very lovely people at the Hollywood Reporter who employed me for so many years um, for not being better. But I I I thought I'd be very happy at that kind of craft the craft of what a story ought to be mm-hmm. in order to make it work so you come to this realization now <laughs> i guess I you're like, you you've, you're you're at some kind of crossroad or let's say you're standing at the shore looking at the sea what boat do you then sail off on i think if it had happened that i'd come to a realization and then i decided now i must look for something and then i'd made other things happen i think that would that would that would sound more logical. I think what happens is all these things happen at once. Mm. So um, I have this realization that I'm a bit, I'm a counterfeit. So I think that's the thing about being an imposter. We all talk about, like everybody talks about imposter syndrome, <clears throat> but Arsene Wenger in his next memoir will say, uh, you know, I didn't feel, but, but I don't think, I don't think, I think sometimes we are imposters. We actually are. I was actually an imposter. I was actually for 10 years had been pretending somewhat successfully to be a journalist and uh and then i realized that the thing that i found easiest was a different thing but it didn't really happen that i then i decided to move and change i just was sort of there's a sort of a period of where you where you feel really bad that you you don't fit you don't fit in the thing that you thought you were a fit for this kind of niggling feeling that you've had for a couple of years that maybe you're not you're not the you're not good enough to be amongst the best because you don't have that thing it's actually you know it's a furball and now you've coughed it up it's just not a good feeling it's not like i felt oh i've got this kind of massive realization this felt like oh that's really bad i felt really bad um and then actually i had a, a the one thing you do as a journalist, especially as a business journalist, is that you meet a lot of chief executives, over and as a uh, and uh, as a as a business writer on a paper like the Hollywood Reporter, you meet entertainment, TV, production. You meet a lot of people in that space, and you have relationships with them over a long time. So you you kind of get to know people, um, and I think I got to know people because I'm really interested in business. Even as a business journalist, I wasn't the one who wanted to say everything's terrible i wanted to understand why why it hadn't happened um and i'm i'm fund the, the thing that i'd done at the standard times was to look to take a a peregrine falcon eye view of a complex system a complex interlocking system and to understand just enough of it to write 600 words that an expert could not prove to be wrong mm. right <clears throat> and in journalism you have to be right you have to, somebody can sue you uh, or just write a letter to your editor saying, oh, you know, that, that thing that you said is not factually correct. And that's like, you know, you can only do that one or two times. I never managed, I luckily, I never did that. I never had a challenge or a complaint or a thing. You have to be right. Um, and that sort of peregrine falcon-eyed view, which I didn't value at the time, and when I finally left journalism, I, I didn't really know what I'd learned in journalism. I didn't think I'd learned anything that I could take forward. But actually, it was really, it was really important because it gave me the one thing that I, I haven't had enough of, which is fear of doing something different, 
right? So I have all sorts of fear about my capability, about my place, about all sorts of stuff. But I never, I never seem to be scared enough to not do something new. And one of my, when I, when I, when I, when I got a job at Lab Bible, a very, very good friend of mine said, "But Mimi, you don't know anything about digital media." And I was like, "You're right. You're right." But not knowing about the thing that other people know about is fine. It's knowing the things that they don't know about that mm. really matters. Mm. And I had a very solid sense that I had, I would able that I would be able to add value in those situations. I, it turned out that I was, um, I had been talking about Channel Five, which had been bought by Richard Desmond. So Richard Desmond owned the Health Lottery, Channel Five, the Express, the Daily Star a couple of other magazines, um, and I'd been talking about his entry into the UK TV industry on CNBC, and I thought he would make a big difference. ITV was a very, ITV was about 66 pence a share at that point, really, really tanking. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a, a revolution coming for terrestrial TV, um, and I felt that he would play a really strong role in it because he had a combination of assets, but also a kind of instinct that meant even though he was an outsider in TV, uh, my bet was on him. And then I. So your sort of business analyst skills or you know, analyzing businesses for, for journalism yeah. came into play here to see an opportunity. Well, he got in touch, right? He got mm -hmm. in touch with me and said, Oh, I thought you gave me a very good hearing, Mimi. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because you'd, you know, and said, "Come and come and see me." So I went. I went and I went to see him, and you know, to try and understand a bit of their business. And then, I think about a year later, he said, "Got come and work for me." And I was thinking, I should obviously say no because I don't know anything about the job was as a communications director and as a journalist. I'd like I had a lot of communications directors on my on my on my. I think it was a BlackBerry then, um, but. I'd never been one yourself. I'd never, I'd like never done anything like that myself. Uh, and instead of saying no, I said yes, uh, because I just really wanted, I wanted to not be an observer as well. Mm. Portraiture is fine, but I wanted to be in a fight. I wanted to be in a, you know, on a side for something. Mm. Um, and, and I think, he, Richard Desmond is quite often on a side for something, um, and I and I. Everybody said you should probably stay where you are because you've got a good reputation and you're in a good place, and you know this is that would be a big change. But I had already said yes. Okay, so you enter into this new industry, new role, director of communications, new industry, new role. What were the first kind of challenges you had to overcome? How did you deal with that? There are uh, there are like about one hundred and fifty challenges. There was both the where, the who, and the what. Where I was working, who I was working for, who I was working with, and what I was working across. So I think that would that would easily be twenty things, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think we need to list here. But they were all twenty chunky things, uh, which were new and uh, difficult. Um, but I do want to share a, a moment that you, as you learned the, the, the learning of triumph and disaster, 
the 15th of September, 2012. Oh, gosh. And <laughs> yes. the Daily Star in Ireland publishes their paper and yes. there's some photos of two people on holiday. Yes. And, yeah. and these people happen to be the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Yes. On their holidays. Yeah. And they photograph and publish photos of Kate Middleton topless sunbathing in their paper. Yeah. Walk us through the events of that from your perspective. What happened? Well, it was a Saturday. So I was just about to go out shopping with my daughter. And I had like, I had three or four calls from the editor of the Daily Star Sunday when I, looked, I picked up my Blackberry. Um, uh, and I thought, I knew that I had to get back to him about some health lottery something, uh, but I was thinking, oh, four calls on a Saturday—that's a bit—that's a bit—that's a bit much. Oh. Uh, and then as I was just picking up my phone, it rang again, and then um, so the editor of the Daily Star Sunday said a few a few expletives, and then just outlined the situation to me, which is it's about to you know it's about to be everywhere. Um, we need a comment. Um, and I was relatively new. I was relatively, I think I was in, in my first six months as the director of communications so for Northern was, and Shell, which is a big media business. Which, um, which outlets did they? Had the, um, the Daily Express, the Daily Star, OK, a couple of other magazines, Channel 5, which is obviously a regulated business, the Health Lottery, which is a regulated business. It was a sort of you know, big chunk of media, and it was probably, I think, the biggest independent media business. Um, and this was this was just a sort of unspooling, uncontrollable, bad situation. Um, so one of the papers that's owned by the company your director of comms with yes. has published yes. this. Well, it was a license deal. So I think we obviously owned the paper and we licensed some content, but there was no day-to-day -day editorial oversight it was actually done by a different media company altogether who okay. actually ran the editorial. I think, I think if I remember correctly, we would supply a certain amount of UK content and they would provide other Irish content um, so that it would make, that just made it relevant. Mm. So it was almost like a sort of franchise uh, deal. And, you know, we'd never have any sort of editorial involvement in what was in their front page because we had enough papers to be trying to work out what was on our front pages. Um, so this was just a hyper real situation, but what made it the sequence of events that happened had two really important components. Now, a lot is taught about like crisis comms and if, you know, generally in a crisis, you get in a crisis comms person, you get in, you know, there are whole agencies who just do crisis comms. But I think the most important thing is to have a CEO, or in this case, the owner of the business, who is accessible. So I think I phoned, I phoned, I phoned my immediate boss, and then he phoned our Richard, who's the owner. And within about 20 minutes, we had a caucus and a view that we're going to come out very strongly against this. We had to go out with a very strong, clear position that this was not our decision and we were against it. Uh, and actually we were, you know, absolutely abhorred the 
actions that had been taken and would take all the steps necessary to fix it. And so this- I read your comment from the day. Do you, oh, can I just, so my, my daughter was about 11 at the time. Um, she, I put the TV on, obviously, put the TV on and I was in the living room and then she came in and said, mama, mama, you're on TV, you know? And it was, it was that sort of, that sort of real, um, and it was, I think I was in a sort of flow state of, you know, slow, slow, but I, I think, did, I think you said something like we absolutely abhor the, this activity and we have no, you know, we don't support it and we're going to do all that we can possibly do in order to correct it and we apologize unreservedly. That's what I would be saying. Very, very, yeah. I mean, it probably is very <laughs> accurate. I've only got one piece of it, but we abhor the decision of the Irish Daily Star to publish these intrusive pictures of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, which we, like St. James's Palace, believe to be a grotesque invasion of their privacy. You need a boss who will take, who will, who has the conviction to act. Because if you hedge at that point, you're done. And then you get to the end of that day, and, and I think so much adrenaline so much so like your phone is going off the hook like a billion people are calling i had i think about three phones at the time and every single one of them was like send them this send them that send them the other and you can't delegate really unless i mean i found it difficult to delegate because every one of those things sort of needed an imprimatur of us and then but we and also by the time i was acting i wasn't delegating but at the end of that day it only worked because organizationally our structure was capable of having a very powerful response, which was, this is a terrible thing to have happened, right? That's number one. And then the other thing is there's a lot of luck. I mean, if we hadn't been able to get somebody on the phone, if they'd been traveling, if, you know, all sorts of things could have gone wrong. What's interesting is the response from the editor of the paper that published it and what he said he said the duchess would be no different to any other celeb pics we would get in for example rihanna or lady gaga she's not the future queen of ireland so really the only place this has causing fury seems to be in the uk and they are very very tasteful pictures well there are a number of different views about that i'd refer you to the earlier statement that we made which set out a viewpoint and i think there were some transformational changes actually after that um, but it did, it did show that you're very often in a crisis situation in charge of your perceived to be utterly responsible for something over which factually you just have very little control. I mean, there were 364 other days of the year that we had no idea what was on the front page of the Irish Daily Star and it never caused a problem. So moving on, you, you moved to a role with the health lottery and you get your first commercial deal tell us about that so actually that the first commercial deal i did was was quite soon after i joined as the communications director because it was a very commercial organization and it was sort of there was a test it was a test to 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 try and persuade um our partners our, our retail partners to to take to, who were retail partners who distributed the health lottery tickets to um, create a sort of 
um, customer benefit for their staff by which they'd get a free lottery ticket every week so that actually we'd we'd build a sort of engagement and some connective tissue. Um, and in one of our management meetings, it was sort of suggested, it was put to me that this would be my job. Although I'm, I don't think my face was saying it. I was thinking, okay, I'm the communications director, which I've got about a week and a half as experience or maybe a month and a half. This commercial thing is something I've never done. I don't know how these things work. I've never, as a journalist, you don't do any commercial deals. You don't do any deals. You don't do any PowerPoint. You don't do any Excel. You don't do, you do, this is a story that I'm telling you in 500 words. And if you, if I'm wrong, you can sue me, right? That's what you do. So this whole idea of like, you're going to do this thing. I just went back to my office and I sat down and I thought, what, what am I going to do? And then I thought, I just go and find some commercial people and ask them what I should do. Mm-hmm. So I went to, um, a guy I knew who, uh, who's the head of broadcast sales for Channel 5. And I said, what do I do here? And he just kind of, he looked at me, it's like, why are you doing this? And I said, because I've been asked to. He was the first of about 10 people. He just was looking at me like, I can't, you're a dead man walking. I cannot help you. I cannot, <laughs> oh, no. there's nothing. I'm not going to be able to tell you how this works. And he tried to be really kind about it. And what he said in the end was, he said, the thing about any deal, Mimi, is that the value in has got to equal the value out. And then I thought, well, that's okay. The health officer has its own salespeople. I'll go and speak, see, see them. So then they were like, who are you? Like, we're, because I didn't understand sales guys and the relationships that they have with their partners, which they defend utterly. And I think the guy I went to see was Sicilian. He's quite a big guy. And I said, oh, this is the thing I've been told that I've got to do. I've got to get it done. I've got to persuade, you know, retail partners to buy health lottery tickets for their uh, staff as a sort of bonus. And he was like, so just run that by me one more time. You want to do like a couple of million pounds worth of business with my clients. And I'm not going to be involved with that. But you've come to ask me for my help. At which point I realized that like a whole other nuance of, you know, how not to do this <laughs> sort of had become apparent to me fast. You know, very, so I sort of walked out of his room, his office backwards. He's now got an eye on you. But my boss was extremely commercial and I think just wanted to know what everybody's made of. So I'd had about four of these conversations and I'd basically I'd had enough. And I confidence each time. Every every time I was just realizing one other dimension of stuff that I had no clue on. Mm. My husband picked me up at the station. And if it had been a bad day, I'd sort of be in tears in the car. And if it had been a not so bad day, I'd be in tears in the house. But that day I was like in tears in the car. And I said, everybody's just looking at me like I'm so stupid. I cannot bear it. And I was really angry. And I was like, I was, I'd had enough, I'd had enough being looked at like a moron because I also secretly believed that they weren't wrong. They were like, what am I doing doing this? They, these, these are people who have a realistic view on this stuff. And in their eyes, I see nothing but hopelessness. So it's almost like there's, there's them saying you can't do this. There's your boss saying you have to do this and you're stuck in the middle yeah, dealing kind of, with it. And I kind of sort of, you know, I could see why the guys who thought it couldn't be done thought it couldn't be done because if it could be done, they'd know how to do it. Right, and they're the guys. They're the experts. And they're experts. And they're the experts. Never done this before. Never done expected this before. to do something nobody else has done. I got cross, and then and John said because John actually had run a business and had, had done a lot of sort of complicated things, and he said, "Well, 
what is the value in and value out? And I said, ah, you know, that's actually really interesting. Because at that time we did, we were running a promotion, which is a very odd promotion uh, because it's very costly. So I think if you matched two tickets, you won a, a, a ticket for the next week's draw. Lotteries are, are all st- based on a lot of statistical uh, frameworks and the chances of winning uh, are all down to the number of combinations of a, a series of numbers. When you looked at the whole analysis, like you looked at not just a week, because we we'd think thought of things week for week, but we were trying to... The, the deal with supermarkets, we'd need to do a deal over a year. So the number of people who match two tickets out of seven is actually quite a substantial number. And then when you added up the probability of all the other, of you know, winning, when, whatever you win, when you've got three balls, four balls, five balls, seven balls, all the different balls, you add up all these statistical probabilities. I think we wrote a bit of code to work it out. Uh, we had this kind of, revelatory moment where I realized that over a year, half the people in any group of people who bought a ticket every week would win a prize. Like maybe not an enormous prize, but they'd win a prize. Quite good. Yeah. <laughs> and good that's that for, you know, if you want to take that to the to to like the HR director of a supermarket that has four hundred and fifty thousand staff that they're constantly trying to not unionize, keep motivated. Um, this is a motivation machine because not only are you going to win, it's not like when you when you buy a lottery ticket on your own, it's just you and maybe your neighbors, but this is like a sort of a pool. You, if somebody else wins, you'll know about it. It'll create enormous mental availability for the brand. People will remember it. It will have conversation points. And, and what, you know, half your staff are going to win is a really strong message. And then I thought, now we're cooking with gas. Now we've got something that I would want to buy. So you discovered what the value yes. in and value out would be. Value in, value out. And it was an analytical thing, which was the thing that I knew how to do. And, you know, it was all there already because these were promotions that we already had in market. And it was just putting the things together. And then so I had the answer. We went to see another big retailer and they were like, well, actually, you know, I, I kind of like your, I, you know, that, that's not a terrible offer, but it's just not for me. But even though they said no, I, I, I thought, you know, what we learned from that is that we're just pitching this to the wrong person. Let's find the right person. Then I went back to my boss and I said, but I need to pitch it to this person. Can you make that meeting happen? So he did that. And then we went to the meeting, laid it all out. And they said, you know what? Why don't we just try that? That sounds good. And then that was my first commercial deal. And I felt... Yes. I felt this is the thing, the thing that I thought I'd been hiding from for like basically half my career as an observer or a practitioner or a painter or, you know, actually when it really came down to it, uh, I, I, could, I could put it together and it was a yeah, great feeling. Yeah. And I, I realized that actually there's something in that process that I really like. I still wish I could pitch that deal. It's such a great deal. I wish I could pitch that deal to, to lots of other people, but we sold it and it, went, it got over the line. Are you an agency or brand that would like to work with our production company, Unity and Motion? If so, contact us at unityandmotion.com. We produce commercials and social content for brands such as Chanel, Amazon, Reebok, Harrods, The Ritz, and many more. Now back to the show. What's your advice to someone who's 
faced with a task at work that feels outside of their remit, feels like outside of their skills, comfort zone, capabilities, what's your advice to them? Try everyone you know and, don't, and just keep keep trying. I think the, what I didn't know then is that that process of just feeling like you're the world's stupidest person for believing in this um, or trying to do this because you basically think you, 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 lose, you lose the conviction. I mean, all the people who looked at me like I was a moron stopped looking at me like I was a moron, mm. right? All the people who thought this is never going to happen it may be, um, uh, but the fact is I didn't know, and maybe there wasn't, you know, I was lucky. This is what I mean about luck. You come away with a feeling that I made that happen, but imagine we hadn't been running this terrible promotion that actually cost us a lot of money, but actually gave us the narrative that we needed. That would have been a different thing. Maybe there wasn't a value in, value out, but but it turned out that there was in this particular case. So mm. I think just keep keep leave no stone unturned. Mm -hmm. That process of feeling like a moron is really painful. Uh, but but there's a chance that you can turn it around. So also, there's also a reason. I, I would say, I think at, earlier in my career, I would always go for that. I, I, I think I'd also say, so it's worth trying to understand why nobody else has ever done this. Um, that's worth understanding. Mm, but. Yeah. I think the thing that I learned from from Richard Desmond, who I tremendously admire, is that he wasn't so concerned with things that other people thought were possible. If you want to be an innovator, if you really want to do innovation, you have to believe in stuff that other people don't believe in. Not just that they haven't done before, but they haven't done it because they didn't believe in it. And I think I wrote a piece for Marketing Week a couple of years you ago. You did, and I've actually got a quote from it I was going to use <laughs> later, but... I think that was the time to get up. And this was about being a visionary. Yes. Because you were putting yes. in the top 100 visionaries, I believe, of yes. that year. Yes, which is a very bad place to put me, but anyway. And your quote was, a visionary is someone who believes in a future that other people are not prepared to imagine. And that's the easy part. The hard part is continuing to act on those beliefs until you persuade the rest of the world that you are right. The difficult part is being able to change opinions and create a movement. The hard part is what separates business leaders from the people who get shunted off at the first round of Dragon's Debt. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, that, oh, that, was, that sounds a bit harsh, actually. But I have been around, have worked for really visionary people, and, um, and I find that incredibly exciting. So Richard was one, Solly at Loud Bible was another. Actually, my current boss, Jan Schwartz, is a truly truly capable of innovation and what's interesting is when you're adjacent to those people you become a bit more like them you become a bit more uh and and so finding people who you want to be like i think is a really important part of uh and what they they're going to be different from you because if you found people who are like you you'd already be like them i think there could be no more different people than me and some of the people that i've worked for but we were, I wanted what they, what they manifested, I wanted to be like, I, I admired it and I became in that kind of magnetic field that they existed much more like that than I ever would have been. Mm. So I think uncomfortableness is not always a bad thing. So Difference is not a bad thing. 
Speaking of uncomfortableness and differences, this is, uh, we get to a time where Lad Bible enters your life. Yes. Now, for those who don't know, Lad Bible uh, is, is a very big organization now. This is a company that they claim to reach two-thirds of 18 to 34-year-olds across the UK. Yeah, That's I'm sure. I, yeah, I remember doing the initial piece of work for that stat. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, they have two hundred sixty-two million followers worldwide across all major social platforms. Oh, I bet it's more than that. Uh, perhaps more. Um, and their five web websites attract almost sixty-nine million unique visitors every month. They have Lad Bible in terms of the brands under the group, Unilads, Gaming Bible, Sport Bible, and Tyler. Generating more than 28 billion content views go globally every year. So big, big organization. They had an IPO in December 2021, um, raising 30 million, uh, raised capital worth 30 million with revenues over 50 million in 2021. Big organization. When you joined, I mean, five plus years ago, Lad Bible was known for videos of men sliding down escalators and dogs this is the cat video era um men, innocent times men pushing <laughs> their baby in a pram around a skate park this is the type of content you may see in in the early days i think that's fantastic i i've got time in my life to see you know a load of men with a supermarket trolley dressed up as a sort of ferrari I, i've got all the time in the world for that it's great content what was your first thought when this opportunity to, to work with them came about and explain what happened? Um, I was introduced to Solly, who's the CEO. Um, he founded by, the company 2012, yeah. went to Leeds University and yes. that's where it all began. Solly Solomu and Ariane Kalantari um, by a friend. Um, and he said, these guys are really doing something. You know, they want, they want some sort of, you should go and talk to them. Um, and the the business the business is it was it was chunky then and then it became enormous and i think a couple of things drove that one is that we changed the framework of the content so that it was much more inclusive so when i joined i think there was some there was fair to say a bit of sketchy content there there was kind of a lot of glamour model stuff and um you know, all of which was really, you know, certainly within the guide rails of 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 content. But I felt it just didn't. Um, it's. I think I felt that the content on the platform was like ninety five percent of it was so funny and clever that it appealed to everybody. There was nobody who wouldn't see one of those memes. And think it was a brilliant meme, and you know the brilliance of, of you know very low, you know very fast read social content is something that we don't think about or we don't talk about because we we kind of view it as most of social media is a a, a baddish thing. It's either not good for you, or it's bad for society. Mm. But it's what we do anyway. We just doom scroll. It was a very, very, very interesting business because it was based up in Manchester. Everybody was like twenty-three. Um, it wasn't in the in the London world, and so he had got to sort of a a chunky state. I think I had seven million followers who were very passionate about the brand um, in a sort of invisible way. And 
to the extent that anything was known about the business, it was that, oh, this is a horrid, horrid, bad thing for society. Lad culture is terrible. Lads are terrible. There's an epidemic of, you know, horrible male behavior on campuses everywhere. And I think these guys are, are responsible, which is a sort of, you know, a, a view of sorts, but didn't really match up to the reality. The match, what matched up to, I, I went to, went to the offices uh, in Manchester and the guys were just so nice. You know, I think they- this a, Was this when you'd got the job? Or you went to just meet them? I no, I'd met I'd met Solly and Ariane. I'd met Solly in London, and we'd had a long conversation and and about what he wanted, what he thought about the business. And he's a very serious and thoughtful person. And I thought I could definitely go along on your vision. I mean, I know he's he was twenty three then, I think, but it didn't seem like twenty three, or at least he seemed that he understood his um, his world. And I'd come from very traditional media. Like this print interesting media. thing. Traditional media. I would guess you wouldn't describe yourself as a lad uh, at that point. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and what, so what was your first reaction, though? Um, I'm really. I think I felt that in a whole career of media, um, the stakes had been such that a traditional media platform is based on its knowledge and expertise. It knows something and you don't know it. So it sets up a sort mm. of power hierarchy. So, and especially the kind of quite serious media that I consumed, worked for, wrote for, read, it's all expertise based. So the Times knows what's happening in Ukraine more than I do. Therefore, the Times reporter on the ground has a story that that it's the value exchange for me listening is that they know more than I do, uh -huh. you know, um, and that's the whole model of what I would call traditional media, and I don't mean traditional media with a digital website. I mean that's the model or that that knowledge status defines one set of media, and what I saw like in in Lad Bible was a totally different peer to peer conversation. Uh, that didn't have any of that disparity in power. So when I would talk to the Sport Bible guys or Lab Bible guys, you know, I'd say, well, you know, I, the, the head of social then, I think he's still the head of social now, Mike Vaughan, who's some sort of, you know, uh, kind of, you know, one of the one of a, a dozen people I know in that business who have defined something that happened in their generation. They 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 owned this part of you know, the increments of human development. And he'd say, well, you know, if my 20 mates see something, and it was all very Facebook then, which just shows you how much things change in well, five, five yeah. years. But um, if my five mates see this and they like it, that's what I write for. And I think what they, what I learned from that is that if your five mates like it, then 100 million other people will also like it mm. uh and it was the test was do you like it not am i telling you and 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 the status relationship in 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 social media is totally it's a totally different paradigm it's it's about relatability it's about this guy who has like 
pimped up a supermarket trolley to look like a Ferrari so that he can pretend that he's driving a Ferrari. He's like you. He's not, he's not, you're not aspiring to him because he climbed, you know, he's the first man to be on, he's not Elon Musk, although we love Elon Musk, but, you know, he's, he's, he's a person like you. The stories that are the most important stories are stories of people like you who are doing something that's interesting that, that you could do if you thought about it. You just haven't done it, but it's not out of your reach. And there's this whole world, and I think they're very separate. And I think traditional media really struggled to try and understand how should it manifest itself in the social world because it, it's always about... They're, they're basically selling the pots of the past, the newspaper feature, you know, online, like in their social feed, click on this article. That's just the, the content of the past in the product, in the, in the containers of the, of the future. Mm. It's a kind of an uneasy thing. I, even now I think, okay, well, I, I do want to read that article, so that, that works for me, but it doesn't, it's not an innovation. Mm. Whereas this kind of peer-to-peer communication, this peer-to-peer story, this peer-to-peer thing that involves us all was so powerful because there was no distinction. And that thing that, that thing was just like a different thing. It was like, it was like a, you're going to need a bigger boat for how big this is because uh, I had never, ever seen that before. And I'd been around. Like, and, I, and that's how I knew these guys knew stuff that I didn't know. Like everything that they knew, I didn't know. It's not like I knew some things and I was going to tell them because I was, I was an expert. I knew nothing. They knew everything. They knew everything about this other thing. But and I love another thing. But they, so they've, they've employed you to come in and, and do something though. And they know all of these things you don't know. They're very different. They've had very different life experience maybe to you. Um, visually very different different maybe personalities you're sat in a room with with the maybe the leadership team or something what how well that's 23 you don't have like a leadership team they were you know they had actually very formal processes which i i respected ariane was a is a is is actually a really good coo he's very operational but you know it wasn't it wasn't i think they thought i was going to tell them off because they'd done loads of girls girly stuff that 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 somebody was going to say you shouldn't do. Um, and I thought, how am I ever going to have any kind of, why would they ever listen to me? I just am so far out of whatever they think a person who understands. I, I, I thought there would be zero common ground and I thought it's going to be really tough. That is a tough situation to, to go into, it's, it is anyway. Yeah, but they, you know, I already loved, like I already loved what they did. I loved exactly what they did. And I think I wasn't there to to say, do what you do differently. I was just saying, like, if we take this bit away, it opens us up to all this bigger stuff. What was this bit? Well, I think, you know, the, I think the kind of stuff, the girly stuff that I think, if I'm a woman... And I'm seeing that in the feed. Maybe, maybe I might just be me. It might be a generational thing. But I feel like, okay, I was part of every other joke. I was, I was, I was in the. I, I could understand that joke because I thought it was funny. And now, now, like maybe I'm a part of this joke. Maybe I'm the the butt of this joke. But it's not the right word. But you know, maybe I'm the. Ob- and and it creates a sort of as a dissonance. Woman, do you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think as a woman, I f- I feel a bit differently about cleavage Thursday than um, if I'm a bloke. And I feel, oh, well, 
maybe 96% of lad Bible stuff is for me, but Cleavage Thursday is just like, that's just like, I'm annoyed that, you know, perfect cleavages are very, it just makes me feel differently about myself. So here's a, a woman coming into the company lad, called Lad Bible, and you're sharing how you should start to reduce things like Cleavage Thursday or, or remove them. How do they react to this? I don't think I don't think that I was pushing at a closed door because obviously to become a, a a more commercial business we'd have to change things. But I think that it was the um, the strength of what they did, like the strength of what they did, and how well it worked, and how powerful it was, and how you could see it connected with you know we could see when a new story is posted, just the site traffic. It's just mm. site traffic. It's like watching. It's like watching all the money come in on the casino. It's very, very addictive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we could do this all the time and bigger. Let's make these changes so that we make everybody feel included. Yeah. Everybody can come to our party. Um, Lad Bible's kind of place in the world is to make you feel a bit better about the world and everything in it when you leave the environment, which could be just a scroll on your feed compared to where you started. It's there to be that bit of the world that you that makes you that makes you feel happy in a number of different, quite codified ways. Mm. Um, and and in order to be true to that, which we were doing ninety six percent of the time, we had to drop the other four percent mm. because then we could make it one hundred percent of the time, and then there was no sort of tension in our, in in our in our offer. Yeah. And they were totally down with that because they did the ninety six percent better than anybody. And this that you know, we spent about a you know a couple of years. And every Saturday, there was something in the, you know, the Guardians about, you know, the Guardian style section or the Times or the, you know, the weekend supplements about this is a new business. It's made in the, you know, there was a lot of, there's, it really worked in the world. You know, people sort of, it was so big anyway that when you looked at it and realized how big it was, it was obvious that it should be a story. So there was a big story around that. And what we were, it's not a story about how big it was. It's how big you could become if you had a good and strong view of men. If you believe that young men, uh, 18 to 24-year-old blokes in the UK, lads who liked their life, were good people, and you could reflect that back to them, reflect their strengths back to them, then the, then you became you know, exponential. What, what did you learn about young men through that process? What, what did you think before and then after leaving Lad Bible? I think, I think before, as I say, you know, I, I had no real kind of, there was no intersection in the Venn diagram of the life of Mimi and the life of a 21-year-old lad. There just wasn't, you know, I understood sort of, I understood women of, you know, twenty, you know, not to you know, whatever age I was at the time. I think I understood the corporate world. I understood senior executives. I understood business a bit. I understood all that domain. You put me in one of those, in a ring with one of those people, there's some intersection. Nothing, literally nothing. And they were so generous and so kind and so welcoming and so patient. And I remember I used to sit with the Sport Bible guys because they were really good. James Parrott, who ran Sport Bible, I think still is Parrott still there, um, and Joe Biamonte. And then uh, I think Parrott was trying to explain to me a meme with Meza Ozil. It was like when Meza Ozil wasn't playing, and he was trying to explain that. And so Parrott, I know that I get that, I understand it. You know, 
they they really stuff that was stuff that even I understood because right, it was that obvious. Um, they just were very kind about trying to explain it to me, and I and I felt how loving, how really nice, and I felt I'd do anything. You know, these guys are the best guys ever. I feel much better as a woman about men. I think than I would ever have done if I hadn't had that experience. I I remember the the times like when there were the old lab Bible as well because I followed them, yeah. and it was at the point where sometimes you might get in trouble as a man if your partner's next to you and they say what's that oh i'm just on bible <laughs> trying to yes. style it out yes. but then it got to a point where she'd be sharing stuff with me from that bible and then i was like oh wow this is you know this is really growing now it's not just for for lads kind of watching a bit of this yeah. and that yeah. it's for everyone so yeah. i think that was well reflected in me kind of as a as a user of the that's so interesting. That's so interesting because I, I vividly remember, I think very early on, I did a piece on Five Live with Sybil Roscoe and because they were up in Manchester, they were up in Salford. And, and they were both having a kind of a bit of a laugh like, you know, are you just all about Cleavage Thursday and isn't it, isn't it really tacky and isn't it? And, and I was really bullish because I, I had now, like, like with the health lottery, I'd kind of, I got the, I, I knew the, I knew the, I, I had a card that nobody else could play against. And and I say, you know, we probably know more about young men, and we have more of an engagement and more of a kind of understanding of their sentimental horizon, what they like, what they support, what they're willing to do. We had data scientists to to unpack all this, and actually, we have a story that maybe you haven't heard, but our story knocks your story out of the park. I didn't think I said it exactly like that, but your story. What's your story? Our story is that there's a great deal of strength, generosity, support. Um, humor, uh, that humor is is a good thing and a, a positive thing, and there's a there's just this there's a tremendous great warmth that you wouldn't know if you weren't looking at our data outputs in the way that we are. But when we look at them, when we analyze, you know, the language that people use when somebody says something is like they're upset about something. When we look at you know what we what we see is a story where you want the gu- you want the other guy to win. I think maybe that's it. You know, and I had not really understood this ever. You want the other person to win because they're like you, and you have empathy, which I think media media don't like men. We don't like young men in our society. We're quite suspicious. We think all of them are sort of trouble, really. And well, maybe like not point one percent might be trouble, really. Everybody else just has to live with that, you know. You look. And what like is that. your message for people who do have that perspective, given what you've learned? I think that our society needs the next generation of men who are not necessarily all on the Goldman Sachs investment banking program to feel good about themselves and to feel part of society and to not feel excluded by society. Because if they do. That's bad for everybody, and if they don't, it's good for everybody. And the sheer amount of goodness that I experienced is not some sort of fluke. You know, the data's not a fluke. My personal experience is not a fluke. Their generosity is not a fluke. It's not random. Um, I think it's just part of a story that we don't hear very often. Even when you talk about the empathy that you saw on the platform, that's that's a really important factor, I think, for for men to just be have a space where they can be empathic to something yeah. or to share you know to share in a victory or to share in you know in it to share in something that happens in life um outside of their day-to-day life that they can connect to 
you and we saw so many interesting things. So, Loud Bible audience was quite young. I mean, this is going back five years, so it's not, um, this is not about the the, the business at the moment because I don't I don't see any of the analytics, so I don't know. But we watched all the analytics, and there's a guy called Sean who's the data scientist, and he and I worked on loads of stuff together. And he was a great guy, but even stuff like you know, so for like when you're 21, 22, you don't necessarily think of. I mean, I I, I don't think you think of being a parent, right? But you know, we get huge engagement on dad videos, dads being good dads. So like dads doing crazy stuff in a very male way, but like how they did their daughter's hair or, you know, dads doing ballet. I went to ballet and, you know, they got huge engagement. There's a huge sort of positive thing about great role models, but doing it in a, not in a sort of performative way. I think one, you know, and, and everybody was a hero. If you were on Lad Bible and you went, you told your friends, I was on Lad Bible, you're a hero. It was like, props. it was just unbelievable. <laughs> there was this, some, I don't know whether it was Wolverhampton or not, but some, somebody worked out how to peel a potato with a, with a Dremel, with a drill that goes around. You just attach the thing and it peeled the potato for you. Genius. You know, and there, there is this kind of male male mindset and male space that we don't really know about you know and it's 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 doing this thing it's using some technology to solve a problem that actually technology is not required to solve a problem at all mm. um but to do it in a, an inventive way so the potato peeling was one the uh, i think some guy had his daughter stand on a board that rotated so he could do her hair he could rotate she would be rotating on some sort of thing and he could do her hair okay i can't remember how that worked but but it's all the stuff we just don't see that. Like that's just new to everybody. It's not new unless you that person's your uncle, right? Up until social media existed, that piece of our world, that piece of a huge amount of effort for for something that's just funny, it wasn't it didn't see that at automated at scale. Mm. This was a transformational thing. It was a just a kind of extraordinary picture of uh, a another possibility in, in human development that we hadn't really seen before. Mm, love that. Um, and just, so, so moving on to your career, you spent some time at Vice Media as Senior Vice President of Strategy, and you have CMO role at Wireless Group for their stations, Talk Sport, Talk Radio, Virgin Radio, and eventually land up as Director of Strategy Research and Messaging for the Liberal Democrats. What was your experience going into politics well i think i'd always been interested in politics i mean for i think part of the reason i wanted to be a journalist and then did a lot of stuff in westminster so you know was was i was interested in the world of politics i was very interested in how that works and i think even in the media businesses that i worked and even in the health lottery you could say I was really interested in the lives of the end users so i think i'd i'd felt i under and i might have been trying to kind of run a sort of political agenda for young men through the job of the sort of marketing person. That wasn't really the job. That's not, you know, if you hire a marketing director off the shelf, that's not what they really do. Um, and I think I'd, I'd tried to, I, I'd been very focused on that, you know, on, on and I thought this, that's, that's a kind of political conversation. Maybe I should just do that in actual politics. <laughs> and this job came up and I, I hardly ever, ever, um, apply for jobs. I'd done some of those jobs as, as a consultant because I thought, 
maybe I just want, to, I also wanted to do some studying. I needed like so six months chunks to do some MBA level work to, to formalize things that I had an instinctive feel for and to really understand the 300% that I didn't understand compared to the 65% that I did. So I'd taken uh, some time to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought actual politics, why don't, why, that seems like it would be a real, a real fit. Um, and politics is, is actually really different. It's very, very different. Um, and I still struggle to explain exactly what I mean by that. But in any commercial business, even if you're like me, a sort of dreamer of that life of the end user who wants to make that bigger, that, that sort of aligns with whatever the CEO wants because you make it bigger, it shows up in your sales or it shows up in your engagement. I didn't try to solve the problem that your the job was really about, which is get sales up or get the engagement up or get the ticket sales up or do this. I, I found I was solving a different problem for which that increase was an adjacent benefit. I think that's, I, I, that's a consistent theme, which I try to explain to people before they hire me that I think I will end up solving a problem that you don't think you have <laughs> because there are loads of people who know how to solve the problem that you think you've got because they've been doing it for the last 15 years. If you want that, then you don't want me because I, they'll be better than me. But I think I will solve a problem that you don't even have, have any thought about because you're not trying to solve that problem. An adjacent benefit of that will be your objectives. Mm. What was the problem you solved at Liberal Democrats that they didn't know they had? I don't know that. I I don't know what I I I don't. I think that the I think there was a piece of positioning, a positioning work that we did that was with Savanta. Don't think I can talk really much about it because I'm now like you know twelve months nearly out of out of that. Um, what I find, so politics is really, uh, it's both very exposed. So I, I ran strategy messaging and, and research, uh, and, and also within that came communica and communications. So at any point, somebody could be on air, an MP could be on air, and something, something that day is happening. So it's very high stakes. I felt that you were sort of on a, on a very high stage, you know, like 10 feet high, but you just didn't know where the edge of it was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's just, you've got to have a certain mindset to be comfortable with that. And I think MPs of all parties, of all stripes are, you know, they're doing that every day. It's kind of, it's kind of scary. Whereas there's a sort of much more strategic and marketing and positioning discipline around, you know, how you persuade people who maybe voted for you once to vote for you again. That's actually a sort of, it's a four P's marketing problem. It's basically your product, your promotion, your place and your price. Well, pricing is not exactly it, but it's, it's a, there, there is at the end of it, if you set the next election as a goal, there is a strategic route to that. But also politics is very, very much about the story of today, being on air for today, doing that. So you've got what I think is the most difficult challenge for that, that every business I, I've ever been in has, which is the long versus the short. And it's incredibly 
difficult to take a long-term point of view, incredibly easy to think that the sum of today's short terms um, is, is, is better. And I'm a brand marketer. I, I believe in brand equity. I think that um, future value of any endeavor is based on building uh, a kind of long-term memory of what the promise this thing is offering you is. And I think, um, but Liberal Democrats are, are very much local and a local, local, locally based organization. They're local heroes who get things done in their own environment. And I think that um, those are just two different viewpoints. And so uh, Ed Davey is, I think, the best man in politics. I love Ed and he's got a really good team around him. Uh, and he's a person that should be a uh, should be a leader. There should be, and I and I and I want them to do really well. For those um, but those don't know who he is, just explain. Who he is. Yeah, he's the leader of the Liberal Democrats. Yes, but um, and, and he's a very very good guy. And I think you know their Lib Dems are really on a winning streak. But I think their their expertise that they need in that job is actually much more local uh, and sort of almost like a feudal family. You know, like the. It's much more like this, you know, this the, the seven kingdoms <laughs> in politics, and especially because it's a membership-based organisation that it's it's committees and and groups and individuals and people who have basically thirty years of knowing each other. That's how the organisation, the organism functions. And um, it's Game of Thrones. So many things are <laughs> like everything, but but there is there is a bit of that, and I think that's I, I think that's true. Um, and so, is there a huge need for a strategic brand thinker? I think that there. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the successes that they've had. You know, Cheshire and Amersham while I was there, and subsequently Shropshire North, and you know, put put some money on the Lib Dems winning um, Tiverton. But um, that's a it's a it's a different sort of. It's much more campaign. And locally led thing, and I'm a very uh, national, simple, straightforward messaging. That's my. That's where I've been successful. That's the thing that I find okay. easy. Well, not easy, but you know, that's the destination I can get to. Yeah. Grey Matters new business tip for today: speak at events, webinars, and podcasts. You know your stuff, so share it with the world. Your potential clients will be listening to your expertise. If you don't have the confidence to speak publicly, ask one of your team members to get involved. Grey Matters is a straight-talking business development consultancy that empowers agencies to position, market and sell themselves for new business success. You're now at LinkedIn. How does this business differ from the other organisations that you've been a part of? First of all, it's very obviously bigger. I mean, it's a much bigger organisation and it is, you know, it's part of the daily lives of about 800 million people. Um, you know, it's become, it's become a part of our vernacular. Like, you know, you reach out, you connect to people on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn has probably depositioned the business card industry mm. entirely. Uh, and it's become a, sort of a global repository of our professional identities and our professional conversations. Uh, so it's absolutely fascinating to be part of that organization and to just to start to understand it because there are lots of, you know, a big organizations have 
big chunks of things. So understanding the different component parts of the business is really interesting. And this is a company, again, just to give a sense of start uh, uh, scale for people listening, 18,000 employees around the world. I think it's probably even more than that. Really? Yeah, I think it's probably uh, more than that. Uh, revenues of over 10 billion US dollars in 2021, oh, it was reported. Yes, because we're obviously part of Microsoft. Mm. As a, a Microsoft bought uh, LinkedIn a couple of years ago. Amazing. So we're part of an even bigger organization. Wow. And it's very exciting to be part of um, uh, a sort of a West Coast um, tech product-led business. It's a very different experience mm. to being in a sort of, some, for someone who spent a lot of time in sort of European media businesses. I think there's a different model um, I think any kind of at any point in the last twenty thousand two thousand years, um, you can sort of in a European model predict how um, how battles are won, how people behave, how things are going to happen. Everything from the Normans to the you know from the Romans, the Normans, um, and to the uh, Italians, French, how how we've colonized a place. They kind of give us a, a sense of what we now use in strategy. We those are the mental models that we drive from, and I think um, tech businesses are a bit different. They they have a different. They have a very global sense of connectivity. Ours is a very global feeling business. It's twenty thousand employees, but it has a really strong culture. Everybody has the same sort of sense of um, culture and values. If you talk to people at LinkedIn, the culture and values of how we treated each other, what we put, what our priorities are, how we trust um, and care about each other. That's the, that's the primary thesis of the organization. That's, that's how it does the thing that it does, which is creating economic opportunity. What have you learned while working there that might be interesting or valuable for, for others to hear? I don't think it's something that I learned there, but I think the culture, the culture of an organization, its idioms, the way it behaves are a competitive advantage, if not the competitive advantage. One, because they help you predict what's going to happen in you know how the organization will do something. You know, I know that when LinkedIn wants to do something, it will do it with um, a total commitment to respecting members and members' interests. That will be the priority. Um, that's an idiom, uh, which is a distillation of a set of a culture and a, and a value. Um, so it makes us predictable, so big, but predictable. And once you are able to predict what you will and won't do, yeah, that that's that's the foundation stone for strategy. So I don't think I, I don't think I only learned that here. I think the idioms of organisations define their outputs and also how they're about to achieve those outputs everywhere. But I think it's very clear here how powerful it is, um, and you know it, it has to be powerful because in a tech business, the world of product and product cycles changes very quickly, global scale changes very quickly, the people that you're uh, who become members grow very quickly. So you need to be able to lay down some preset beliefs that define your actions. Mm -hmm. So why did this job you have now make sense for your career path then? 
for your skill set? The important thing is I learned in different places. Mm. So I work for the B2B Institute at LinkedIn, and I am the head of EMEA in Latin America. Mm. And we're a think tank. We sit within LinkedIn, um, and we we try to provide businesses, probably mostly B2B businesses, with advice on their long-term growth strategy. Um, we work with external academics uh, who are very interested in the advertising, marketing, strategy space. So we worked with Rory Sutherland. We worked with Mark Ritson. We worked with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. So they, um, Byron Sharp from Ehrenberg Bass wrote how Brands Grow, which is, I think, a seminal book which transformed how advertising has 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 worked. And I think we come up with mental models that are relatively simple and easy to understand that help business owners get um, a, a sense of how they can better run their marketing strategy. Because marketing, as I believe it to be across a whole set of things, marketing is strategy. Um, Roger Martin, who's another um, incredible intellect that we work with, who, who wrote a book called um, Playing to Win, um, co-wrote it with A.G. Luffley, who was the um, CMO at Procter & Gamble, I think. Um, Roger Martin talks about marketing is strategy. Marketing is not some sort of, you know, visualization of a business's strategy. Marketing in its truest form is for is the elements of product, pli- price, place, promotion. Um, and it's integral to growth. Marketing is growth. If you understand how to balance long-term growth that you have to start building demand for now and harvesting the current growth that's basically the growth that you've achieved because your category has told people what it does for the last two or two and a half years, that's the sweet spot. And I think there's a huge opportunity for, you know, whether they're the world's largest B2B businesses, you know, and all immensely fast growth businesses like Snowflake or Stripe or Salesforce. I think there are some others that don't begin with S, but, you know, S3, <laughs> um, or Square or, you know, fintech businesses. There's a huge kind of range of businesses that are being birthed by a kind of cosmic soup of AI, big data, cloud, these are the businesses that are going to define the next century. And um, unlike the B2C brands that we know, they don't focus as much as they could on building brand equity. But brand equity, which is the unfair reason that I buy your product, the reason I believe your product is better, um, is a huge opportunity. Um, My colleague John Lombardo, who's the head of research, says uh, he's really obsessed with Moneyball. Um, do you know the Moneyball mm. baseball Baseball, film? Oh, yeah. Um, so Billy Bean, who's I think the general manager of the OAs, which is some baseball team, um, says, you know, that they're a kind of failing team and they've just lost players. And he says there are rich players, there are poor, there are rich teams, there are poor teams, then there's 50 feet of and then there's us. <laughs> and you're trying to pick players as if we could compete on a kind of fair level playing field. Uh, 
in my whole career, I think every success has been from discovering an unfair advantage. An unfair advantage. If you're a challenger brand, you need to find the unfair advantage. And I think B2B businesses have huge amounts of unfair advantage. And actually, that's why we think that there's a tremendous amount of growth. So we work with lots of enormous businesses, but also with tens of thousands of smaller businesses who are who are, who don't see themselves as being the greater opportunity. But I think that we can help them. And the research that we put out is about helping them. The way that we work with some of our clients is about helping them to recognize that this change in behavior will lead to these much greater rewards. Mm. And it's about unfair advantage. We don't spend any time thinking about that. Mm. Whereas actually, it's very unless you're unless you're already a rich team or a rich player or in the top 5% or something, you need an unfair advantage. Talking of things we don't think much about. This is a great segue, but you, <laughs> we uh we had a conversation before this about yes. yourself and your story. And you mentioned things about uh, you mentioned things about quantum science and consciousness, and these are things that you're interested in and and know about. Tell us about. I've got here a line about quantum science. It may even reveal how everything in the universe, or multiple universes, is connected to everything else through higher dimensions that our senses cannot comprehend. Okay, I don't. So, I think the reason that we had the conversation was because because I think in in the process with this, as storytellers, the device of a storytelling is to pick out a, a moment, a series of moments to string together, just like the lights that you can't see, but on that on that string to series of moments as if that was the predetermined narrative. And I think that's a very powerful idea, especially now in a social media driven world where we tell stories about ourselves all the time. We've, we've learned how to, I can tell you a story of four moments in my life that made me the person that I am. Unfortunately, whilst I can tell you that story, you can hear it. If I believe that story, it's not really good for me because that, that's an entirely fictional representation of my, of my world and my life because those four moments were set against 36 million other moments, which were basically relatively banal or I did something stupid. Probably more of my life will have been defined by the fact that I failed to read my calendar properly and thought it was Wednesday instead of Thursday than any of the great moments that I'm telling you show me is this kind of amazing, like, you know, thing, the person from which other people should take inspiration. But it's like I something like 80% of our life. Well, I mean, 80%, if you're, if you're lucky, 80% of your life is full of quite boring moments, right? And I think when you have children, you are washing up, you know, you're like, your, your life is, those are the things that really sort of, you, we are what we spend most of our time doing. And we don't spend most of our time being these magic moments that tell our life story. We spend four moments out of all of our life doing that. And the other moments are the real moments of who we are. But I think it's a little bit damaging to think in this way because we get trapped in these sort of filaments of our story. like the person who did the deal, the person who discovered that they weren't very good at being a journalist and made something happen. They're lovely stories, but it's not really... The way I think of life, and I think why we talked about a sort of a quantum view of the world versus a very Newtonian classical physics world of view of the world. So this moment-to-moment -moment thing, fixed, deterministic, predictable, 
and ultimately wrong is a sort of Newtonian classical model. It only exists within a certain narrow parameters, doesn't work for the very bigness of the world, doesn't work for the very tiny things. It works within a, a narrow range. And I think our whole experience of life is much more along a quantum model of, of position. So your experience of this moment, which we are in theory sharing, and my experience of this moment are totally different. What you see and what I see almost don't intersect. I just take it on faith that we feel like we're in the same moment, but your experience is very different. You can so, see all the horses around, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> the, the place that I'm in the universe and the place that you are determine our whole experience. There's a, a writer who was a physicist, who's a quantum physicist, who worked with Einstein called David Bohm. Uh, and he wrote, towards the end of his career, he wrote about his theory of, of, of the implicate order and his theory of the implicate order is that we're all passing through time. At any one time, we're only in this moment of time. Everything from the minute ago or the second ago or the micromuon second that's just passed falls into the implicate order, which is that all the things that happened in your life or Asher's life or my life, um, and that at any one moment, we can take a, a, the implicate order is a sort of holographic model so rather than it being the sum of all these moments, and I just pick these one moment like Polaroids out of the magic bag of my history, actually, we're just they, they're all merged together. If I take one moment, it's a holograph. It's got all of the different moments in that one filament. And I think that's actually a much better way of evaluating ourselves. I'm like this person who did this or that. I don't think so. I'm, you know, at any one moment, triumph and disaster, I think to your point, can happen. I better not have my whole mindset based on being a triumphant person because otherwise I've got nothing to combat disaster with. But if I look at a sort of a holographic, all these things happened, some good things happened, some bad things happened, some terrible things happened. I was good at some things. I was bad at some things. I was found out in some things. I moved on to some other things. That's for me, it's a much safer sort of mental space to to view whatever next that I, I don't know. And so there's there's... There's a, the filament model. David Bohm said the filament is not the implicate order. The implicate order is, a, is the implicate order. The filament is a, a, a moment. But if we take that one moment and then expand it into sort of a, so it's kind of like a, a filter across everything, we can tell a story, but that will not be an accurate story. The reason I left journalism is because the thing that happened in the room and the story you told were two different things because you are appending facts to a predetermined narrative line. Storytelling is really powerful, but it's just not how we live. It's not what really happens. It's not our, it's not, we shouldn't tell ourselves that story, even if I'm telling you that story because it's easy for us to understand. Mm -hmm. You can get a sense of it. So if I tell myself that story, I'll be trapped in four moments of my life. My life was all of these things. It was love, it was loss, it was children, it was family, it was work, it was trying, it was fear, it was a moment of success, it was forgetting that moment of sex, success and then trying to have to build it all up again. This is what it is. And that's why it gets easier as you get older, because whether you think about it in a sort of implicate order sense or not, eventually you just think, oh, well, I've seen, I've seen that before, I've seen that before, I've seen that before, I've done that before, and it becomes easier. It's very difficult when you're young, especially if you're surrounded by people who's, who are giving you these kind of filament-based stories to see a future for yourself. You know, everybody needs to take a deep breath and, you know, 
wait five years, you'll figure some stuff out. Whatever you figured out in five years, you'll use. It's much better advice to give to somebody young than, you know, I made this amazing thing that my story was so, cons- con- you know, consistent and the narrative line so strong that unless you've got a narrative line, you don't have a feature. That, these are very poor messages and I think that it's very hard. It's hard enough to be young now, but it's even harder if you have a filament model that tells you that, that you have to be able to plan it all out. I feel that that's a bad message. Well, thank you for bringing a, a unique and different mm. perspective to it. And I guess that is the relation, is, is that our life, all the events are connected from start to finish. There is a, a connection with it all. Just like as quantum physics talks about that all the matter in the world is connected as, as well. And if you just pull one part out of it, you can't describe the whole. Matter is just an emanation of consciousness. So anyway, but we should we we we, we, I, we can wrap this up. Yes, I like. I like. can't leave it there. Cliffhanger. <laughs> Matter is a some is a what of consciousness, um, and it's just an idea that consciousness has been having lately. Matter, consciousness, space, time. You know, there's so so much is un. You know, is is theory that in a sense, quantum physics. You can have you can be like a football fan. You know, you can like loop quantum gravity theory you can like this other theory you can you can you don't have to play on the field to have it have a view of course i know you know even david bohm's best book i think i understand about five percent of but the implicate order the sense of superposition of quantum that a quantum wave function exists in superposition until or unless you try to identify a particular moment so what i'm saying is that at any one moment the eigenvalue of my the, the multiple eigenvectors of my life exist all at the same time when you ask me for a, a moment i have to collapse the quantum wave function and give you a numerical answer you want a deterministic answer to what is essentially a statistical way of being and i find it very difficult for me because i i have more faith in this model than that model to do that, to, to, to collapse the whole thing into one story or one set of stories because they are all existing at the same time. I think we, yeah, we do need another episode <laughs> for this, for this, oh, this version. I, this I love that. I think you explained that really well. When, when, if you're to, to pull something out, you have to collapse it all. Yes. And that's, yeah. I, I, have I, to. I, the, I think what it is, what is it? The modulus squared of the eigenvalue has got to equal one, equals one. That's what happens when you collapse a quantum wave function. You say all these possibilities, I want, I, I, I want to, I want to cease all these possibilities and have one, one answer. I want to know one thing about the position you are and the speed that you're moving at. I want one answer, and I, I think that the one answer model of the universe is a little bit more risky than the everything at the same time and multiple possibilities model. Yeah. But, you know, people who know more about quantum physics are just going to be coming in and there's going to be even so much hate. The haters are going <laughs> to hate. Amazing. Well, it but, sounds like you know a fair bit or you've thought about it a fair bit. So. I've thought about it a lot. Yeah. I've thought about it a lot. I think there is also a lesson there in that, you know, if everything is connected, that every action that you take on this, while you're on this planet, every decision you make and, does affect everything else. You're part of the whole. And yeah, they're all mitigated by other stuff. Mm. You know, uh, 
the the totality this sounds like really silly now but the totality is the point right the point is not what what was i in one moment in time that made one thing in my professional life different a different outcome i think for me the totality is even in that moment i was all these other things because you're asking me for successful stories and and, and i also i that's why i don't really think in terms of successful failure i had to really think even if i've done really terrible things i think that the i just shove them into the you know the implicate order and forget them straight away because it doesn't really help if you've missed a penalty the last thing you want to do is to kind of you know think about it a lot nobody has a you know that's what sport is so amazing sport is so amazing and sports men and this kind of sports mentality is a terrible thing you need everything to work and then it doesn't work that's why we find it so fascinating but then the person goes on and you know they take a penalty in the next world cup you know and then they land that penalty and and if 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 all our lives were like that, I think we'd have like we'd just be, it would be impossible to survive at that level. I think the the value in you going into that moment and recounting it and sharing it for us today can really help somebody who may have gone or been through or going through something similar to learn. Okay, you did get through it. It was all okay, and you went on to great things, and and that's what sharing it can do for, for someone, which is appreciated. I, I, just to finish up that point, I think my, if I was to, my, my advice, if anybody wanted my advice, would be that, you, you know, there could be a hundred different futures, right? There could, you could get, you could, uh, 10 years from now, you'll have found one path, but at any point in that path, there were, a hundred, if not a thousand, other alternatives, um, and and any one of those over a ten year, any in any ten year cycle, wherever you get to, you should have faith that you can, you can, because I have faith that you'll get somewhere good. I have faith that you'll get somewhere good because trying and failing, and not knowing what to do, and failing and being feeling like an idiot. These are part of the process of of this is what winning looks like. It's not what losing looks like. This is just what you know. You being in the game, being being still there, being still able to be happy about yourself and to be happy and and uh, to be and and that's why love matters, family matters, people around you matter because they give you all the other things. Otherwise, I if it was just about our professional success, it would be a very shrill set of notes. Um, the more the you know the the more easy, gentle you can be with yourself, and and that that will give you more ability to, to try. Mm-hmm. Lovely, I love that. We like to end the show with a little summary from ourselves about your your life, and uh, and break apart the holograph and just take one little bit and make everything on from it. So apologies for that. <laughs> no, 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 that's <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Ash. Summary points. I think I think parts of what you shared today show that there can be a lot of perspective shift if you're able to be in an environment and learn about in your instance it was like lad culture let's say to learn about to learn about an area of society of people that you didn't know anything about there can be a lot of wealth in learning and having an insight into 
what really makes them tick, what they really care about. You can learn a lot through that. I think that's 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 a really big one that I, I've taken from from your story, from someone who's able to see what you've seen and then reflect it back. I think that's a that's a massive one, and also also how you can be put in position sometimes and not know what you're doing, or not know the nuances of it. And half half of it is you've just got to be brave and try some things to see what happens. The other half is to ask for advice of people that are experienced in that area to gain certain insights that can assist you in gaining the experience you need to fill that position. And I would say that your story is great for somebody who, let's say somebody is faced with a task that they feel completely unskilled for, or they're entering into an environment where they feel completely disconnected with the other people. Just picture Mimi Turner walking <laughs> into Lad Bible yeah. for the first day with lots of young men who uh, maybe don't have, have a different life to her and having a great success of it and having a great time and learning so much about things you didn't know before and gaining a, a great, a different perspective on, on life. And, and it all worked out great. And if you can do that, then many other people can do great things. And also the commercial deal, you know, not having that role at all, having everybody going, nah, sorry, Mimi, I can't <laughs> help you here. You're on your own. And then just working at it, working, working, and finding the opportunity, making it happen. That is, there's some great lessons there for people that if you're, if you feel like you, you can't do it, then um, think of Mimi <laughs> and maybe you can. <laughs> well, it's been really lovely sharing, um, sharing some stories with you. And I think if they help somebody, that's great. There's probably a whole set of other people who are supremely qualified to do all the things that I just kind of, didn't know about because I wasn't qualified. So there, there, there are lots of people who know how to do those things. But I found a lot of I learned a lot from from being in situations where I had really no reasonable right to be, um, and did actually be able to bring something. So um, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Many, many people like to do the same things and just get better at it for some reason. I never managed to do the same things. I always ended up doing something different. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. This is how you became Mimi Turner. <laughs> yeah, and the story's not even finished yet. Exactly. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you.